1: If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk free for up to hundred days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15 Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use.
2: Today's cool fact of the day is that about one third of the human race has 2020 vision. So you shouldn't feel alone if you have to wear contacts or glasses. But you should also know that there are ways to improve your vision. I recommend you start by reading Yoga for Your Eyes by Meyer Schneier to improve your eyesight. There are, however, many other vision hacks available to you, and we'll be vlogging about those later.
1: Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices.
2: We have a great interview today with Joel Salatin, founder, owner, and operator of Polyface Farms in Virginia, only about two hours away from where Army lives. Joel talks about how you can be a higher performance person by eating real food grown the way it's meant to be grown and shares the secrets for optimal living and nutrition. Today's listener Q&A has questions about the safety and effectiveness of ephedra, the supplement glutinies the effect of legumes on insulin sensitivity, and whether or not blood testing is a waste of your time and money. As always, we close with our Biohacker report, where you will hear a brief summary of three new pieces of research that help you avoid having autistic children with glutathione optimization, decrease stress and improve performance by avoiding email for a week, and live longer and healthier by avoiding bad food, medication, and stress. On the blog this week, we've got a lot of really cool stuff going on. We're about to launch our upgraded aging formula, which addresses in a single compound four major aging pathways. It deals with cardio issues, glucose normalization, it mimics caloric restriction, it addresses cancer in animals, stops neurodegeneration in animals, and is based on a metabolite of the Krebs cycle. Pretty stoked to be bringing this out so that everyone can get all these benefits by taking one pill instead of taking many pills. Army, what biohacks are you working on this week?
3: Last week, I burned myself when pulling pans out of the oven, and I decided to use MCT oil to try and heal the wound after seeing some research showing that it might decrease inflammation on surface wounds. After two days of rubbing MCT oil over the wound about twice a day, the damage was completely healed, and I didn't even have a trace of scarring. I'm not sure of the exact mechanisms, but it may be because of the antimicrobial properties of MCT oil. There are many studies showing that in vitro MCT oil is just as effective, if not more effective, than some of the bleeding antibiotics. Either way, rubbing MCT oil on the wound seemed to help, and I'm going to do it again, if I get burned again. Hopefully, I won't.
2: It turns out you might want to just rub it on your skin anyway, as sort of an anti-aging thing. Our skin loves being slightly acidic this whole, you know, alkaline's better. Alkaline will burn your skin and isn't great for it. So the fact that it, you know, it is a fatty acid can be helpful as well. Uh, I noticed my face is always better when I put MCT on it.
3: See, I already rubbed my whole body over with coconut oil anyway. So I figured the MCT oil, yeah.
2: It's 15% MCT for the Capric and Caprylic, but that's probably enough for your skin. I don't know that it needs to be pure as long as you don't mind smelling like, uh, you know, you've been to the tropics.
3: I love that smell. <laughs> I think you've been experimenting with fatty acids too, haven't you?
2: I have indeed. I had a few people recently who've said, you know, I just don't handle butter very well. And we know that if you're extremely casein sensitive, butter can be a problem for you. And on the Bulletproof Diet, we position ghee as being even healthier than butter because it doesn't have even small amounts of milk proteins in it. So one of my biohacker friends, Steve Folks, sort of challenged me and said, "Hey Dave, you should see if you have a sensitivity to the protein in butter because maybe if you did, that would be why bulletproof coffee makes you feel so good because the protein could be stimulating a cortisol dump which would make you feel some extra energy." So I took him up on his challenge. Now Steve, if you haven't heard of him, is the author of Smart Drugs and Nutrients 2, and he's the single most gifted biochemist that I know. He's an advisor to the Silicon Valley Health Institute, the anti-aging nonprofit that I run. So when he tells me to try something, I usually do because uh, he's one of those guys I always listen to. Anyhow, so I went home and I threw 10 sticks of Kerrygold in a pan on low and I slowly cooked it. I clarified it. I skimmed off the bubbly stuff on top and poured it through a coffee filter. And I went on an all ghee diet for a week. And I'm proud to say that actually Bulletproof Coffee with ghee gives me a bigger boost than butter does. I feel even better on ghee than on butter. And I have very slightly less post-nasal drip because I do know I'm sensitive to dairy proteins. And if you're white, there's a 50% chance you are. If you are black or Asian, there's an 80% chance that you're sensitive to those. So ghee is a better choice for everyone, but I found that I tolerate butter well within tolerances, but that I prefer ghee, even though ghee doesn't make quite the same frothy goodness on the top of my coffee, it does blend in well with a high-end blender.
3: We talk a lot about animal fat and other animal products in our interview with Joel Salatin, and how you can use them to improve your performance.
4: Joel Salatin is an American farmer, lecturer, and author whose books include Folks, The St. Normal, You Can Farm, and Salad Bar Beef. Salatin raises really, really good livestock using holistic methods of animal husbandry free from harmful chemicals on his polyphase farm in Swoop, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley, which is about two hours away from where Army lives, coincidentally. Joel joins us today to talk about his unique farming methods and why they improve both your health and the health of animals. Joel, I'm really excited to have you on the show today because we write extensively about grass-fed meat and frankly, I only eat grass-fed meat. I won't eat factory-fed meat because it just reduces my mental performance and makes me feel awful when I do it, so I don't. Right. Welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
4: So so let's jump right in. How did you get interested in sustainable farming and health in the first place?
5: Well, I'm a I'm a second generation, or even a third generation at this. My, uh, you know, my parents, mom and dad, bought this farm in 1961. I grew up here. I was just four when we came here. My grandfather, my my dad's father, was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine when it when uh, you know JI first came out with it in what was it like 1949 or something like that, and and uh, he had a large organic garden back before the government owned the word organic, and you could still, you know, say such things. And, uh, and I remember uh, going up there so often and just being surrounded by that abundance. He had his compost pile and octagonal chicken house, and he'd, um, he'd skewer sugar beets on the wall and mangles in the wintertime so they'd have fresh um, you know, fresh vegetables and stuff in the wintertime for the chickens. So, um, you know, I grew up in this, in this uh, mindset I Always said, Dad was organic before Rachel Carson wrote *Silent Spring*, and I got it from him, and our family's gotten it from me, and so, so here we are. I, I don't, I don't have a great big conversion
4: experience. Wow! So you're a multi generation organic farmer. That's a truly unusual thing.
5: Oh, uh, it sure is. You know, most most people have come to it with some, you know, uh, current life epiphany, but. Um, uh, Dad saw the, I think he came to it more uh, more as an economist than an environmentalist. I think that's uh, fascinating. The older I've gotten, the more I've, I've appreciated um, that foundation. I've now had the privilege of, of maybe coming at it more, uh, or certainly as much from an, an ecology standpoint as an economy standpoint. But he saw the whole chemical fertilization, herbicide, pesticide, um, system as being simply a drug trip, you know, that that you, it was a vicious circle that you could never, you could never, um, you could never get out of having to get a bigger, bigger hit to get a, to get the same kick, and um, and so as a result, he was looking as an economist at what are ways that we can reduce our overhead, that we can have uh, fertility generated on site, that we can have uh infrastructure that's low cost that's uh that doesn't give a great great big depreciation table how can we do more with less and so um, so what that led into was um, electric fencing uh rotational grazing moving the cows around no no tillage uh not not plowing uh but using perennials uh as opposed to annuals which don't need to be tilled and then uh, portable infrastructure, uh, where as soon as you start moving the animals around to eliminate um, pharmaceuticals from sickness, from them being in the same place all the time, then you have to have portable shelter. Well, portable shelter needs to be designed uh, light enough so that you can move large shelters around. So this stimulated this whole uh, design phase that we're kind of you know well-known for of, of how do you have uh, scalable, efficient, portable infrastructure for movable animals, and uh, so it was, it was that underpinning that created the, um, you know, the look of the way the farm is now.
6: Joel, I think your comparison to these synthetic fertilizers as a drug is very apt. I've thought that for a long time. Speaking of economics, one of the things you hear a lot about grass-fed natural farms like Polyphase. Is that it's not as productive as a large-scale CAFO or concentrated animal feeding operation, and that it's really just not sustain- sustainable for large populations. Are CAFOs really more productive than farms like yours, or not?
5: Well, they're not as productive. They are more product. They they do produce more volume of material in a single uh, in a single concentrated footprint, but that is a very skewed. Um, image of what you're seeing. See when you when you look at that Tyson chicken house or that big uh, you know uh, cattle feed lot or that hog you know con- uh, confined Smithfield hog factory. What the industry wants you to think of is that that is a self-contained production unit. Look at all this. Look at all this that we're producing in this tiny, tiny little footprint. What they don't show you are the Acres and acres and square miles of corn and soybeans and tillage and um, and and petroleum fertilizers uh, that we send troops around the world to protect, so that it can be cheap, so that they can get cheap In, anyway. <laughs> what what you, what you don't see is this this huge um, pile of energy and materials and actually you know subsidized money flowing into that house, and then extremely nutrient deficient, pathogen laden, and, um, and energy intensive manure and materials exiting that house. Whereas in our system, everything is done on, out in the field, out in the open, uh, so that there's no manure to haul. Uh, there is the animals spread it themselves. There's no concrete to pour. There's no energy going into a structure because the structures are all lightweight and, and, and movable and portable. Uh, even if our animals, let's take let's take, our, our, um, let's take our, our omnivores, our poultry and pigs, even if our omnivores did not require one did not get one single ounce of food from the pasture, we would still not take one more acre or square foot to grow an animal in total, because you know we're we're using grain for those for those uh, chickens and pigs as well uh, for the omnivores, not the cat, not the herbivores. We're using that, but it's the same whether whether it's it's uh, the grain is brought in to a pasture feeding situation or whether the grain is brought in. a confinement Tyson house feeding situation, it's the same amount of land being used for the same amount of animals. The only difference is for us that we have a lot less energy used in infrastructure, in manure management, and we don't have any pharmaceutical inputs due to the hygiene hygiene and sanitation. Uh, We actually stimulate immune systems instead of tearing them down. So uh, we absolutely produce more per square foot than the concentrated animal feeding operation.
4: Okay. I, I want to make sure that the vegans who listen to my show heard what you just said there. Because one of the most important things, the arguments that people make about uh, going vegan is that it's good for the planet and that you know it's the only way we can grow enough food to feed everyone. And I'm absolutely convinced, based on a lot of the science on the site, that that going vegan, as as elegant as it might be for human beings, creates uh, basically people who, over time, especially multi-generationally, are less able to reproduce, and certainly like like all sorts of health problems emerge from that over time. So you're telling me that you can actually go ahead with with what you're doing. You can at least meet, and maybe even exceed, the density of of a factory farm. What about exceeding the density of, uh, say, someone who's just going to eat an unhealthy diet of corn or soybeans or something? How do you compare to that? Have you ever run the numbers? Oh,
5: sure. Actually, we've run the numbers compared to uh, perennial, perennial forage, for example, for grass-fed, grass-fed uh, uh, beef, uh, a grass-fed herbivore, compared to corn or soybeans. And we actually produce just as many pounds of meat or milk per acre from perennial, well-managed forages, and I use the word well-managed on purpose because most forages in America, most pastures are not well managed. They're continuously grazed, and so the the high-quality plants are continually uh, um, eaten eaten hard into the ground and go into energy uh, energy disequilibrium, um, and the and the plants that are that are not good, the weeds and all that. They're allowed to proliferate because the animals are eating back the clovers and the good stuff. So, in, in when, when 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 we're talking about good grazing management, we're talking about biomimicking the way the wildebeest are on the Serengeti or the bison were on the American plain, uh, where we're moving, mobbing, and mowing with these uh, in dense herds, and we're moving the animals every single day to a fresh paddock. So we'll we'll put um, you know three or four hundred head of cows on two acres for one day and then and then that two acres will be will rest for 100 150 days before any animal uh, any herbivore comes back on it and that allows the grass to go through its sigmoid curve of um of of rapid biomass um biomass generation created by you know photosynthetic activity and when you manage the pastures that way they actually produce more biomass, more sequestrable carbon, more meat and milk per acre than our very best genetically modified, hybridized, chemically fertilized annual crops with no tillage. As you put that energy cost in it, then the well-managed perennials beat the annuals uh, by light years.
4: Wow. Okay, then there's a follow-on question. I know because I grew up in a farming community with horses and whatnot. That when a tractor runs through a field and say, you know, mows whatever it's mowing, uh, that usually there is there are a whole bunch of tractor kills. You know, snakes, bunnies, uh, other animals, mice, not to mention insects that are kind of ravaged by this factory agriculture we have. Mm-hmm. How many? byproducts kills do you have on, on with your methods of farming and i'm thinking like maybe a, a cow steps on a frog every now and then other than that <laughs> do you right. have that
5: right well um yeah you're you're certainly bringing up a great argument and let let me just say from the from the idea let me just touch the 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 thing about you know uh when a vegan looks at me and says well you obviously can't love anybody this is a good day to talk about that that you can't love anybody um because you you uh, you know you eat animals you kill animals. Look, there is no animalless ecology in the on the planet. There is no place on the planet that does not use animals in the system, and everything has a prey predator relationship. In fact, everything is eating and being eaten. And if you don't believe me, go lie naked in your flower bed for three days and see what gets eaten. Everything is eating and being eaten. That That is actually the whole cycle of decomposition. Uh, life life gives itself. When you, when you eat a carrot and you take that, that living carrot into your mouth and you mash it with your teeth, you masticate it, you break it all up, you destroy it, you take its life, and you swallow it and it goes into your intestinal tract where three trillion bacteria surround it. I mean, three trillion bacteria surround it, and they... They, they take that sacrifice, they take that sacrifice, and they, out of that sacrifice, they create a sacred thing called life. And the fact is, whether it's decomposition of, of carrot tops in a compost pile by the bacteria, whether it's the bacteria, whether it's the, the earthworms that are, you know, working in the soil... Uh, the, the, the whole of life requires sacrifice of living material, plant, animal, and everything in between, living material, fungi, bacteria, actinomycetes, all this stuff is living material sacrificing itself for the next generation of, of sacred life. And, and that, is, that is a sacred cycle.
4: I don't know if I can handle those defenseless eat carrots with little faces. The idea that I would have to kill a carrot to sustain myself—I I, I just don't know what I'm going to eat now.
5: Well, here, here's, <laughs> uh, you know, here's my here's my take on that. You know, if by what stretch of egocentricity can a person say that? Well, because because a cow has eyes and looks like me, it's a more important life form than a plant that doesn't look like me. Uh that's an amazing egocentric way <laughs> to view life.
4: To say, to say that,
5: that o- the o- only life that looks more like me is more important than life that doesn't look like me. That's crazy.
4: It it, it is crazy and uh it, it sounds like it, it sounds like we think very similarly about the system of agriculture rather than just you know what's right in front of me and and I've calculated um, pretty carefully actually if i eat 2 pounds of grass fed meat a day from cows that's 0.7 animals killed in the entire system versus you know if i was to eat tofu every day i don't think i could i could count the number of animals killed but it would be probably at least i don't know 10,000 by the time we went through the oh hole. yeah
5: yeah well the the, the, yeah. the tillage you should see all the uh, bloody earthworms sliced to death you know through through tillage and and the the uh all the uh, bugs chewed up in a combine as it goes through. I mean, it's blowing the, the poor little grasshoppers and the crickets up against the side walls of the combine and spitting out their legs and heads and antennae in little pieces. I mean, come on! The, the 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 fact that we can even that we can that we even have the luxury to have a discussion about whether or not it's okay to 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 eat uh, eat a steer. Uh, versus eating a a, a tomato plant or or a tomato um, indicates the aberrance or the abnormality of our whole culture. Look, the reason that cultures throughout history built themselves on herbivores was because that was the one nutrient-dense food item, uh, either herbivore or seafood. Those were the two options that were very nutrient-dense, that could be grown and eaten without requiring tillage. And so, um, you know, in the days when tillage was, uh, you know, walking behind an ox or a, or a yak or a water buffalo with a sharp stick all day to try to, you know, um, disturb a little bit of soil so you could plant a rice or a wheat plant or something else, tillage was very arduous and therefore, grain was extremely expensive. Uh, throughout history, grain's been very... That's one of the most aberrant things that we have right now in our culture is cheap grain. Um, grain has never been cheap until now. And, and so uh, because grain was so expensive, it was the perennial, whether it was the, the acorn-finished pigs in the Iberian Peninsula, the acorn-fattened pigs at Monticello at Thomas Jefferson's farm or George Washington's farm at Mount Vernon... You know, pigs, omnivores historically were always scavengers around the homestead. They ate the blemished fruit, the spoiled milk, the acorn drop, the cleaned up the, you know, the the dropped fruit and the bugs and stuff. That was the, that was the omnivores. The cows, the herbivores, uh, sheep, goat, cow, uh, that, you know, camel, um, yak, uh, that all ate, um, herbage, which was perennial. And, um, and today we've inverted that balance and americans now eat twice as much grain today as we did just 50 years ago and now you wonder why we're gluten intolerant why we've got you know big fat bellies on everybody and we're we're carrying around this starchy stuff uh rather than eating um a more historically normal diet which consisted of non-tilled perennially based um nutrient-dense products with a little bit of grain and baked items thrown on the side.
6: Well, that is an excellent point, and we're going to talk a little bit more about grains when we get into the interview. I had one more question about the health of animals and uh, people, because obviously we eat those animals. How are you able to not use pesticides, antibiotics, and all these synthetic fertilizers and stay profitable? Because when you look at all these big factory farms, they're all pumping these petroleum-based fertilizers and pumping their animals full of antibiotics. How are you able to keep your animals healthy and not you know, go bankrupt? <laughs> well,
5: um, we, we, view healthy, we view health as primarily a factor of, of terrain. Uh, terrain is what we create. The habitat we create for the animal or the plant. Uh, if if a cow gets sick, we don't immediately assume well. We must not be using enough drugs. We we immediately assume. Oh no! What did we do to create a situation that compromised the immune system of that of that cow or that chicken or that pig or whatever? And so, in our system, by rotating these animals and having Having synergistic, symbiotic relationships where the chickens follow the cows, to, you know, like the egret on the rhino's nose. Uh, the pigs turn the compost, um, and, and 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 they get to uh, uh, work for us. The, the the chickens are moved every day to a new spot. The cows are moved every day to a new spot. Um, this kind of movement of what I call ballet on the pasture uh, is extremely identical to what you see in nature, whether it's any kind of herbivore, bird, omnivore, whatever. In nature, things are not pinned up in one spot in their own excrement, breathing in fecal particulate um, and create, and creating such a, a pathogenic, toxic terrain that it overrides their immune system. All this is is a matter of creating a habitat and a terrain that respects and honors the uh, the pigness of the pig, the cowness of the cow, and allows it to reach its phys- its physiological expression.
4: Wow! You mentioned the pigness of the pig and the cowness of the cow, and uh, I just uh, I really really like the way you're you're thinking about the whole the whole way that the land interacts with the animals, and then we interact with the animals, and, and how it sort of creates a healthy loop there. You mentioned pigs and cows. What are the other animals that are I don't necessarily want to say more efficient, but that, that are part of the system? I, I know you've got chickens, but are there other things like goats, sheep? Like, what what's the range that you support or that you recommend for people who should be eating these things? Well, or just I,
5: yeah, I, I mean, uh, well, I, I recommend the whole, you know, the whole uh, uh, gamut. What we have here at our farm are turkeys, chickens, both layers and, and meat, um, and then uh, uh, hogs and cattle and uh, rabbits, actually, uh, and rabbits are raised on pasture um, when, it's, when it's warm enough to do so. Otherwise, they get a lot of forage, and they have chickens underneath them so that the chickens scratch through their droppings and keep a composting bedding underneath so that the ammonia from the urine uh, can't vaporize up and hurt the respiratory um, mucous membranes of of the rabbits, that's that's you know that's the single biggest problem in these confinement systems is all that that um, abrasive fecal particulate that the animal is breathing in that creates um, lesions in the tender mucous membranes and these uh, these lesions these wounds um, create a direct internal blood and external fecal air uh, interface and that's how you get you know E. coli Salmonella. Uh, campylobacter and things right into the bloodstream or into the oviduct in the case of an egg, right into the animal, it's due to that abrasive fecal particulate that you're ingesting. I mean, look, if you've got to put on a hazmat suit, a gas mask, and walk through sheep dip to go visit your food, there might be something wrong with it.
4: <laughs> well, let, let's talk about another little controversial topic. I think I know what you're going to say, but What about genetically engineered or carefully bred animals? Are you doing heritage breeds? Do you support multiple breeds of cows, or what's the impact of kind of mono breeding animals on the type of system that you're running there?
5: Well, yeah, we um, a couple thoughts on that. It's a a great it's a great uh, question. We are absolutely into heritage breeds. We appreciate all of that. But I like to go one step further. I think what we need to do is be creating new heritage breeds, not just freezing the old gene pool. <laughs> the heritage breeds that we have right now were pretty much developed in the old country, uh, you know, over hundreds of years, based on functional performance of a certain phenotype or adaptability, a climatic um, bioregional adaptability of that kind of of. Phenotype in, in an area, and that's why so many of the heritage breeds carry geographic names like you know the Guernsey Islands where we get Guernsey cows, the Hampshire uh, sheep, uh, you know um, Scottish Highlander cows. Okay, you know, the, 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 a lot of them carry these uh, geographic names. What I would like to see is is to go one step further with that and and breed here. Um, over time, selecting our own regionally adapted functionality, so that the legacy we would give our grandchildren would be: here's a, uh, you know, our our town is Swope. Well, it's not really a town; it's just a post office, but where we could give our grandchildren a Swope breed of chicken or cow or pig or whatever. And um, and that actually that actually gets us, I think, farther down the genetic road than than what we want to do. Um, and, and so uh, I think the best example we have of this on our farm is right now, of course, is what our son Daniel has done with his line-bred rabbits. He started these when he was eight as a 4-H project. And um, and so for 22 years, he's not introduced any outside genetics and been culling for uh, functionality and performance-based, no vaccines, uh, no medications for 22 years, and he went through five years of 50% mortality. But you know, he was just eight, and he had very uh, benevolent bankers, <laughs> mom and dad, <laughs> and so he was able to withstand that 50% mortality for five years. Now here he is, 22 years down the road, and has perhaps the you know the the best um, non-vaccinated, non-medicated, forage-based genetic structure, basically his own breed, um, you know, maybe in, in the country. And and uh, that, in my estimation, is where we actually take the heritage breed, you know, one, one step further.
4: Joel, that could not have been a, a better set of comments. I am in the process of Finalizing a book that Wiley Lee published about epigenetics and how to use epigenetics on human beings to create healthier genes in your offspring and your kids and even your kids' kids. And one of the key tenets there is you eat meat and fat from healthy animals that are themselves not contaminated and and, uh, basically misfed. It sounds like you're applying that same line of thinking, the epigenetics line, that says if you do multi generational selective breeding, that yes. rather than, than just looking backwards and saying I want you know the hundred year old breeds, that you're you're actively stepping up and and sort of engineering not genetically engineering but engineering the way we've always done it, uh, the right breeds for modern environments wherever animals live.
5: Yeah, well, what you're doing is allowing the system to design what the animal looks like. Uh, we've got way too much, you know, uh, this this animal has to have one white ear and one, you know, black ear and it has to be, you know, uh, this length of hair or we throw it out and we've got all these crazy little uh, uh, things don't have anything to do with ultimate health and so what Daniel's done for, you know, the beauty of rabbits is that they do reap, you know, their, their cycle is faster than cows so you can do it faster than cows but, but what he's been able to do is for 22 years um, is is um, select genetic stock based on sibling liver quality, and so if he's going to select a male, he takes all the that all that male's uh, sisters and and butchers them first, looking at the livers. If the livers look good, he'll save that male. If they don't look good, he doesn't save that male. And when you do that multi-generationally and actually look at the health of the livers. Um, and select only high-quality livers, what happens is you create incredible um, genetic prepotency for functionality. And, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's quite amazing. It's quite amazing to see. And this is selection, uh, which people have done for, for a long time. Transgenic modification or gmos genetic modification where we actually break up the dna and we create new life forms that are partly you know partly pig partly human partly salmon that is a totally different kind of of uh, thing than just you know historically breeding
4: it's kind of funny. Army and I call ourselves biohackers because you know, we're actively managing our own biology. But you have got to be the first cow hacker I've ever met. But uh, what what an elegant way of solving uh, of solving the problem of how do you know which animals to keep is but keeping the liver. I, I just love that.
5: Yeah. Well, one of one of the big problems right now in in this line of thinking is that it, let, let's say you're you know you're a new farmer and you buy into this. You say, yeah, that that line breeding and and uh, and true functional uh, genetic selection is the way to go. Every single person that starts down this road has to go through a few years of incredible um, mortality and morbidity uh, as, as, the, as the genetic structure uh, works its way out, and you take out the props. The problem is we have all these uh, animal welfare laws right now that, that, for example, I guarantee you if somebody from um, an animal welfare agency uh, came and visited our farm when we were going through the 50% mortality on rabbits, we would have been gone to jail for animal abuse judgments because having those uh, those dying rabbits, you know, would have been in- indicative of animal abuse and not caring for them. We're supposed to give them drugs. We're supposed to prop them up. We're supposed to, you know, give them this and that and the other thing. and um, And that would have stopped the very hardiness selection process that we were creating. And so and so this is a this is a huge problem right now uh, with the animal rights and the welfare movement of not allowing not patiently allowing those of us who kind of march to the beat of a different drummer to say, you know what? How do we know who can stand on our two legs until we knock all of the um, the crutches out? I, I, if you keep put propping everybody up with crutches, we look at this We look at this mass of plants or animals, and we don't have a clue who can stand. And if we continue to give everybody crutches over and over and more and more and more and more crutches, what we do is gradually dumb down or weaken. We we weaken the genetic immune structure of the animal or plant.
6: What you just said, I think, was incredibly important. How these people who basically have no idea what they're talking about are coming to your farm and telling you that they know more about how to raise rabbits, basically, than you do and that they're going to protect your animals by basically making them weaker in the long run to the point where they'd probably suffer. Speaking right. of you know, bureaucrac- or people coming to your farm and telling you what to do, what do you think of the whole raw milk debate? I know a lot of people say, "Oh, raw milk is going to make you sick. It's horrible." It's, um, like you know, they make it sound like it's just the antimatter or something. Like if you touch it, you are going to die. Have you or anyone you know of ever gotten sick from drinking raw milk from a well-managed sanitary farm?
5: No, I've never heard of it. And in fact, uh, in fact, even from Centers for Disease Control and the actual you know epidemiological studies that have been done. Uh, nobody has actually died from raw milk in, I think, it's something like 30 years, something like that. There, there have been a couple of, of little, um, you know, where people have gotten a little bit sick. Uh, there again, if, if safety is really your big deal, you know, 50 to 100 Americans will die this year, children, in fact, drowning in backyard swimming pools. So, if we really want to deal with risk and safety in America, we'd better outlaw all backyard swimming pools because way more people die in them die in them than even uh, have a possibility of getting sick in uh, w- with raw milk so it's a you know it's very much a, a spurious deal now, as far as as the whole raw milk debate and and you know what is it well, look if you want to drink pasteurized milk, that's fine with me. If you want to drink, no milk, that's fine with me. But the ultimate question here is, who owns my body? Do I have autonomy to do with and to my body what I think should be done? And I say that our community of internal bacteria, they are three trillion members strong, this is a community of beings that I'm responsible for. You don't own them, the government doesn't own them, nobody owns them. And if there's anything that's part of me, it's them. And so, I should be, I should have the freedom to decide how to fuel my internal community of three trillion beings. It's, it's the ultimate self-awareness and self-actualization to be able to have the freedom of food choice, how to fuel my internal community of beings.
4: Joel, I, Joel. I am a huge fan of what you just said, but it seems like there's a problem. Your internal community of beings swaps genes with the external community of beings. And soil quality and soil microbes really are the things that inform what's happening in your gut when you look at the whole planet and our body's the right. system. It seems like when someone goes out and basically destroys topsoil and poisons all of the microorganisms in the soil, we're killing the probiotics of the planet, which in turn affects our own probiotics. It, does that model drive with you? Because you know a hell of a lot more about soil than I do.
5: Well, yeah, it, it does. In fact, um, in fact, a professor at Stanford University has now actually isolated the language that the microbes use to uh, to talk to each other. So, you know, in my uh, theatrical mind, I can imagine you know the microbes having school board meetings and radio shows and <laughs> all sorts of all sorts of things going on as they talk to each other. But yeah, they're, they actually have a language and they communicate, and so. When you have, um, extremely foreign material, uh, whether it's pesticide, herbicide, or, or fabricated things like monosodium glutamate, or, uh, you know, high fructose corn syrup, things, things that, that, that are extremely foreign to this microbial community, it, it creates a, um, well, it, it creates an invasion. Uh, then they have to scurry around and figure out. They have to call a board meeting or you know go into executive session to figure out how to deal with this this um, foreign object. And it sets up a whole series of you know of dominoes that that go through the system. So yeah, I am all about. Uh, it starts in the soil. Uh, if you don't have a healthy soil, in fact, I would even go to so far as to say a civilization can be no more healthy than its soil. And I find it pretty amazing that in our culture we talk about healthcare, healthcare, health care, health as some sort of uh, inalienable right, um, as if that is a totally separate, segregated topic from soil health or dietary health or microbial health. I mean, it's quite an amazing thing that we can spend this much money and have this much discussion um like carving out one little sector that is simply a manifestation of all of the healthful building blocks that come before it. You ultimately can't have a healthy population when you're eating the food we're eating and 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 uh, and abusing the soil the way we're abusing the soil. You know, it, it, it can't be done.
6: Joel, I love hearing you say that, and I think it's one of those things that a lot of people overlook is the actual health of the soil and how they farmers treating it, and it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job. I want to switch gears a little bit here and t- you talk about subsidies a little bit. You mentioned these earlier in the interview. And from What you said so far, I'm going to guess that you're not taking you know, business welfare, as some people call it, subsidies from the government. And a lot of people say that grass-fed meat and you know, natural-fed animals, like you're talking about, are just way too expensive. If the government didn't subsidize grains and soy and all these other products and factory farming of animals and dairy... Do you think the products that you're producing could be made even cheaper? Even though you already said that you're producing on an extremely productive rate.
5: Instead of saying could our product be made cheaper, um, I'm not sure that we'd want to make our product cheaper as much as I would say our product indicates a correct cost. Because the fact Thank you. is that yes. that that uh, the in what I call the mechanical food, the industrial food. Um, Is is externalizing much of its cost, not only in subsidies, but also, uh, I mean, the fact that we're that we sent our best and brightest young people to around the world to make sure we have cheap oil. I mean, the current industrial food system floats on oil, and so uh, maintaining a cheap fuel policy is a direct subsidy to a highly energy intensive dependent food system our system runs on real-time solar energy which creates its own balancing and its own ecological uh, accounting system Uh, it doesn't always run on you know wars and tanks and bombs and so um, i would suggest that our food in in nature's economy is by far and away the cheapest food in the world the fact that 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 nature's economy is not reflected in the retail price or at the ticket counter is not a reflection on our farming system. It's a reflection on the on the current value system that dominates the balance sheets and the P&L statements of our culture.
6: Joel, one of the other questions I have that's also related to all of this is, and also related to my earlier question about whether or not this could be upscaled, do you think organizations like yours or how would organizations like yours grow and feed a larger percentage of the population?
5: Oh, that's my, my, one of my favorite questions. I wanna, um, it, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with it, but um, I, I want to touch on this previous uh, expensive thing just for a point, just to make a point. Um, we'll, I, I, think, I think it's good to realize that there's plenty of money in the system for really good food, I mean, in the last 35 years, our culture has exchanged 30, has exchanged 18% per capita expenditure on food and 9% on health care, to today, 9% on food and 18% on health care. Um, it, it, it seems reasonable to me to think that those two figures might be interchanged. And beyond that, is there anything that people spend money on that they wouldn't have to spend money on? I mean, I'm talking about tobacco, soda, um uh, lottery tickets, uh, you know, DeGiornio's frozen pizza, $100 designer jeans with holes already in the knees, um, you know, flat screen TVs, uh, how, you know, coffee, um, is there possibly anything that somebody's spending money on that doesn't have to be money on? So, there's plenty of money in the system. Now, as to how to feed the world. All normal food systems throughout history have been integrated in the community. The truth is that our production system is far more productive per square yard because all small-scale, symbiotic, relationally complex, synergistic, multispeciated systems are far more productive per square yard than monospeciated systems. Now, we don't have sex appeal and we don't have all power because there's something that's just you know, that that makes our adrenaline rush when we look at 10 combines running through a 5,000-acre field of wheat in Kansas. But the fact is that if that 5,000-acre uh, field of wheat in Kansas were diversified with multi-speciation, including animals, including vegetables, including produce, including, by the way, a lot of decentralized uh, farms and farmers who had a very intimate awareness to that land, The productive capacity would be far more, and the actual production would be far more per acre or per yard than is currently the case in that huge uh, monocrop thing. So the truth is, not only can our system feed the world, it's the only system that ultimately can feed the world. We have 35 million acres of yard in the United States, 35 million acres of lawn. We have 36 million acres housing and growing the feed for recreational horses. That's And I haven't even gotten to golf courses yet. So we have 71 million acres right there. That's enough to feed the entire country without a single farm. Yes, there is plenty, plenty, plenty of land. Uh, nobody goes hungry because there's not enough food. Fifty percent of the human edible food in the world, fifty percent of it is never eaten because it spoils, it, it moves past a sell-by date, it's blemished, it's thrown away, it's whatever. Fifty percent, and that is largely a result of fifteen hundred miles between ev- under every food morsel. Uh, the average food morsel in America sees a far more of America than the farmer that grew it, and that. That, uh, dis- that creates a lot of waste and spoilage in the system. And so, if we just localized and integrated and, and created edible landscapes and southern solariums on houses and, and actually surrounded ourselves in an abundant nest of the earth's bounty that was within visceral, uh, that we could viscerally feel and touch and 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 could could look out and see it as a part of our lives. That is the way we have fed ourselves historically, and that is the way we will feed ourselves in the future.
4: Wow, what a what an awesome way of of stating what seems to be an inevitable thing where're we're extremely far away from that model now. And it seems to be even worse because, the amount of fuel it takes to move say a head of celery which is almost no useful cal- caloric nutrition for for human beings it, it's you know, you're not going to fill up on celery and if you did you'd need you know 10 heads of it in order to have a decent day uh, the, <laughs> yeah, the well, amount of it's, fuel it's, and space in a truck to move celery 1500 miles is is just ridiculous yeah
5: well it's um it's it's primarily water and yes. that's why that's why historically when energy was expensive the only thing people could actually move long distances were extremely uh, lightweight or or nutrient dense things. You know, whether it was uh, tea or spices or um, or jerky or uh, aged cheese. Yeah, you know, bacon, dried things. <laughs> Believe me, when Daniel Boone headed out toward Kentucky, he didn't have watermelons and head lettuce dangling from his <laughs> saddlebags. <laughs> he was he, he was carrying jerky and dried uh, apple rings and, you know, and very nutrient-dense things. And you simply can't afford to truck water 1,500 miles. It just can't be done.
4: So, so I, I'm personally offended by Whole Foods and their, their ANDY score, this aggregate nutrient density thing, which ignores water and just says, oh, this is the nutrient density if you pretend like, like there's no water in your food, even though a bunch of spinach or celery or watermelon is almost all water. So yeah. it. It seems like a giant scam there. When you talk about nutrient density, what are the most nutrient dense foods you can think of? Like your top 4 or 5.
5: Oh, uh probably uh, n- number 1 would be would be uh grass-fed grass-fed herbivore of any stripe, whether it's yep. lamb or or whatever. And 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 even more than that would be something dried like that, like I said like jerky or something like that. Yes. Um you know next next would probably be some sort of very concentrated dairy product an aged uh, cheese you know the kind that gets moldy and crumbles and that sort of thing um you know that that would certainly be another one and then that would probably be something like nuts you know um you know brazil nuts almonds that sort of thing where you where it's a dehydrated uh, product that packs a pretty heavy punch, and then you go into your dried, you know, dried fruits, whether it's dried apple rings or uh, you know, dried banana rings, things that the, that are dried where there's no water. I mean, you, shoot, what I just described, you could just about live on.
4: It seems like you certainly could. I wouldn't have a problem with it at all. Now, you mentioned something though that that's. Uh, a big area of research for me, and you mentioned your moldy cheese there. I've done a lot of research on the effect of mycotoxins in feed as, and in silage for uh, for agricultural animals and the effect on fertility and the effect on even atherosclerosis and all these other problems. Do you deal with mycotoxins much at all with the way you're doing farming compared to you know these these other large corporate entities who actually have to test their food for mycotoxins because... Are they animal food for mycotoxins? Because they're getting so much that it hurts crop production or animal production.
5: Yeah, it's a great question. We d- we don't test for it. I will tell you that we use only local GMO-free grains, so they don't get transported long distances. They don't even get um, uh, the, you know, they come right here off of the neighborhood uh, nearby. Um, they don't sit in the feed tank, you know, a long long yep. time before they before they're fed out, and so. We simply have not had any problems. And, and, uh, I would say that the, the, the second thing is, of course, that our cows don't get any grains at all. If we, if we quit feeding grains to cows, it would, it would, uh, reduce our grain requirements in this country by about, you know, 30%. It's, it's just, it's just, uh, huge. And, 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 uh, that would allow us to grow less grain, which could then be handled better and more efficiently. And, um, Localized, and you know, then if we then if we started having a couple of chickens, if if, if we hooked up a couple chickens to every single kitchen, uh, enough chickens to eat the, the food waste out of every single kitchen, then that would eliminate the whole egg industry in the U.S. You know, you can throw out your parakeet cage and put a couple chickens in there, and um, and they'll they'll be much more uh, friendly, and they won't be as noisy, and they'll eat your kitchen scraps and then you don't have to worry about composting them or anything else. You know, we we ha- we have a segregated environmental idea where uh if we take our kitchen scraps and put them in a bin and put them on a on a diesel truck and ship them 10 miles away to a composting <laughs> site, we go to bed feeling, "Oh, I'm a very great environmentalist." When when really uh in nature Nature doesn't transport carbon. It doesn't ship carbon around. About the farthest it takes carbon is a, is a fall, windy day that blows the leaves around to the neighbor's place. Other than that, uh, nature is all about re, um, you know, recycling carbon on site. And so a, an integrated uh, a food and carbon cycle uh, a fertility system depends on close integration, and that's, of course, what was historically normal, when we when we had a couple of uh, chickens hooked up to every uh, kitchen to eat the spoilage and the rinds and the and the junk,
4: and plus there's the problem that parakeets just don't taste good, right?
5: No, they don't. They <laughs> yeah, they're uh, they're pretty small.
4: So we're coming up on the end of our of our really really fascinating interview here, and there's there's really one more meaty question that I'd like to give you a chance to to tell people about how to visit the farm and and things like that. The first one, first of these final questions, is: Does meat from animals that have been treated humanely is it does it taste better? Is it healthier? Have you seen any evidence about that versus even a well a well-fed animal who's then slaughtered in an inhumane way?
5: Well, the the uh, stress. I'll just stress stress is a is a very um, all-encompassing word. There can be stress. There can be dietary stress. There can be emotional stress. Um, there can be um, uh, heat, cold. You know, just just living conditions stress. Stress makes the body just like it is in us in, in we in a, uh, us humans. Uh, stress creates responses in our bodies. Whether it's ulcers, whether it's um, you know early senescence, whether it's uh, cancer or you know whatever, and and. That creates the same situation in animals. And so um, I just think stress is a, is a really big word. It's all-encompassing. There's a lot of ways to create stress, and there's a lot of ways to eliminate stress. And it only makes sense to me, uh, again, I'm not a scientist, but it only makes sense to me that uh, an unstressed animal is going to um, in, endear to me uh, a, a better um, all around, pro, uh, you know, nutrient than a stressed animal or or plant, for that matter.
4: Joel, there's one maybe point of, of disagreement here. When you say you're not a scientist, you're more of a citizen scientist than most people working for Monsanto today. <laughs> so don't sell yourself short here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Other than that, yes. All right. <laughs> Now, the final question, we ask every guest on our show this question, and it's what are, in your life experience, the top three things that people can do to be more and do more and just to be better human beings in general, across anything you can think of?
5: Um, number one is participate. We, we have a, um, a disempowered, victimized mindset in our culture uh that that includes the notion that you know if everybody else if, if all those people they those them those people out there if they would just be honorable if they would just do the right thing you know all this would be better and the fact is there aren't any they them and those people it's it's just us and so um i i think that in all of these things. We talk about crisis of energy, crisis of economy, crisis of health, crisis of soil. Our biggest, most fundamental crisis is a crisis of participation. People are not participating in soil. They're not participating in their food. They're not participating in their health care. And people are far more interested in, you know, the latest uh, belly button piercing in Hollywood celebrity culture than what's going to become flesh of their flesh and bone of their bone at six o'clock. You've got to participate. This is not some we're not bystanders in some game, and, and expect you know the doctors to fix what ails us, and the and the the uh, you know president to fix the economy or whatever. We, we, we've got to participate. So that would be number one. We, we get off the couch um, and and participate in this wonderful uh, this wonderful life uh, that, that includes everything, including the visceral components of of food and that sort of thing. Um, number two would be to read widely. I, I, think, um, I think all of us tend to be a bit cultish in our reading. I mean, I know I am. You, know, you, you find something you like and you just kind of stay with it. And um, I think it's good to read the opposition. I think it's, uh, I think it's good to listen to both Democrats, Republicans, uh, Greenies, uh, Communists, um, Libertarians, whatever, and um, and subject your views to a w- a wide base of thinking. It's great to subscribe to both both Mother Jones magazine and American Conservative. Um, that's a good thing. Read read widely. And then the third thing I would say is come home. Um, a lot of the things that we that that we're struggling with in our culture are, are a result of a. Of a mindset that everything that's, that's valuable in life happens outside the home. Work is outside the home. Recreation's outside the home. Investment's outside the home. Pleasure is outside the home. And I think that that is highly civilizationally abnormal. Strong civilizations in the past have always found home as epicenter of the most important things in life. And I think that we have cheapened domestic pleasure and home value by allowing ourselves to get sucked into this notion that the only way I can be complete is to be completed by some gadget from China, some performance from Hollywood, and some morsel from Peru or from you know Procter & Gamble or whatever. And I think that ultimately if we turn our hearts toward home, if we turn our pleasure and our interest toward home, we eat together, we garden together, we play together, that ultimately we will develop a greater sense of self-awareness, self-empowerment, and realize that the important things in life are not out there. They're right here inside.
4: What a wonderful set of practices for people. Uh, Thanks for putting it so eloquently. We're coming to the end of the show, and it is important that you tell our listeners about your books, what people can learn from them, where they can find them, and how they can come visit the farm.
5: Sure. Uh, Well, I've written eight books, and uh, I can can just run down the titles very quickly from, from current to most, to el- to oldest, uh, Folks, This Ain't Normal, <laughs> which is a broad cultural um, thing, many of the things that we've talked about on this program. I've covered in this uh, satirical, humorous, and serious, challenging book, Folks, This Ain't Normal. Next one back, The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer, um, my soul book, uh, lots and lots of humor. If you ever, ever wondered What's the difference between good farming and bad farming? That's the book. The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer. Next one back is, um, Holy Cows and Hog Heaven, uh, the, the Consumer's Guide to Farm Friendly Food, which is a very thin, cheap book that if you ever wondered, you know, what am I looking for on a farm? How do I know if my farmer is a good one? That's the book for you. Then you got Everything I Want to Do Is Illegal uh that's uh, the story war stories from the local food front and that describes our multi-decade uh, um you know uh whatever uh, problems with bureaucracy and and uh local food systems and then you have um you can farm uh which is about how to how to start in a farm then family friendly farming um about how to develop a, a, a multi-generational family business. Um, salad bar beef, which is about herbivorous, uh, perennial herbivorous production, grass-finished beef. And then pastured poultry profits, which of course is about uh, pastured poultry. So there you have it. And they're all available uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, your local bookstore can order it for you, and I encourage that as well. And you can Get them as well in our gift shop, our Polyface Farms gift shop. Our website is polyfacefarms.com. You can just Google Polyface Farms; it'll pop right up, and you can see my schedule where I'll be speaking. If you have cousins or relatives, friends that you want to come, you know, hear me speak somewhere, you can see where I'll be. And uh, always good to have, um, you know, more people in the audience. The farm is open 24/7, 365, unannounced. That is full unimpeded transparency. Anyone can come from anywhere in the world at any time to see anything unannounced. That's our commitment to transparency. And we do hope that you'll come and visit us.
4: Wow, what a what an amazing uh, conversation we've had today, Joel. Thank you for taking time away from your farm and away from your family to share your knowledge with all the people who are going to hear the show.
5: Thank you for having me on. It's been a real honor, a pleasure, and blessings on you and all of your... all all the people there.
6: Thank you so much, Joel. I can promise you I think I will be coming and visiting your farm since you're basically my neighbor anyway. So I look forward to that. Please
5: do. Please do.
2: Now we'll start with the Upgraded Self Radio listener Q&A.
3: The first question is from Laxie. I love the site, guys. I am constantly sharing information with my mother as she's just as into health as I am. So keep up the good work. I've got two questions. One, what are your guys' opinions on ephedrine? Once in a while, either to help with focus or something important, or if I overate the day before, I take bronchiade with my coffee in the morning. Do you see harm in doing this? Two, how effective do you think the supplement glutinese is?
2: You know, if you have a very occasional use of ephedrine, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a major issue for you. If you're abusing it or you're taking it on a regular basis... You could be doing some bad things to your body, and I wouldn't recommend it. And if you're taking the normal dose that they recommend for a cough, it seems like you're playing well within safety limits. But as it is a drug and it's regulated, you know, you could always ask your doctor if you weren't sure. Is that something I would do? Actually, something I have done, but I haven't done it in a long time because I have some more powerful things. One of them is uh, modafinil, also known as ProVigil. If I'm having a really slow day, a little extra modafinil over what I would take on a, on a normal day, it can pretty much clean that up in no time, and it's far less jittery than you'll get from ephedrine. In fact, you probably will see on a national news show very shortly a uh, review of what modafinil does to my performance. We actually measured it on camera. The second question you had about glutenese is really interesting glutenese is a digestive enzyme supplement that is designed to help break up gluten which prevents gluten from turning into gluteomorphine and being addictive because gluteomorphine will go into your brain just like any other morphine and will trigger your opiate receptors when that happens you really want that next piece of bread or the next day you really want two extra pieces of bread so it does help, and I've tested it myself, but the problem is wheat does more than just turn into a gluteomorphin. Wheat will actually also damage the lining of your gut. I simply don't think it's worth it to eat wheat even with glutenese. If you were going to eat wheat, what I'd recommend doing is taking glutenase and something called lectin lock ahead of time, which will help to block some of the wheat lectins. And then on top of that, I would take activated charcoal with the wheat, maybe with some bentonite clay as well. Now, this isn't going to fix things, but at least it's going to bind up as much of that stuff. So it does less damage to you and you just digest less of it. Uh, I have definitely done that to partake of sourdough bread, but I haven't done that in the last few years because honestly, even with the best blockages, like when you get used to feeling like a great golden god all the time, why you would want to eat something that makes you feel only like, you know, less than you can be. I just, I lost the desire to do it. Bread is great, but feeling awesome is even better, so I don't do it. Our next question here comes from Reg Z, and he says, removing grains, legumes, and processed dairy produces greater insulin sensitivity in animals and humans. This is citing from one of the points in one of our blog posts. And he says, none of the links mention legumes. So the claim for removing legumes is not supported. Army, as our research dude, what do you say?
3: Actually, both studies were on paleolithic diets, and it says that in the title. Paleolithic diets, or paleo diets, both are always involved removing grains, legumes, and usually dairy, at least processed dairy. One of the studies referenced was on pigs, which is less relevant, but the other was on people with ischemic heart disease. Neither diet was matched for protein intake, which is a major confounder, but both diets did remove legumes. So the claim is supported, with the addition of mentioning that protein intake was higher on the Paleo-type diet. So removing legumes, grains, and processed dairy, and having higher protein intake from animal products, does improve insulin sensitivity. The next question is from CZ, I had someone say this to me about blood tests. What are your thoughts? And the person said, blood tests are usually not very accurate for what is happening in the body. Saliva, stool, and urine testing is always more reliable and predictable for real results. Many vitamin tests for blood are not as good as you need to get red blood cell analysis to get accurate levels in the body. A good naturopathic doctor is by far the best way to go as they are set up with all of these labs and know what to do and what to order. Once again, this is always almost not covered by insurance.
2: I'm a little bit skeptical when I hear things like blood tests are usually not very accurate for what's happening in the body, or that saliva, stool, and urine are more reliable or predictable. That seems a little bit dogmatic. It's just not quite that simple all of your body fluids have a story to tell, and it's hard to say that one is better than the others. For instance, urine is going to tell you a lot about your kidney function, but it's probably not going to tell you as much about cardiac function as you might get from a blood lipid panel. So, you know, gross generalizations are usually harmful when you're looking at biohacking or just at your health. Uh, For instance, calories are bad or fat is bad those are also gross generalizations that simply don't pan out in real life even though they're really easy to say so blood tests are bad a good example there also red blood cell size or cell volume is an interesting indicator that you're just not going to get elsewhere for anti aging and wellness a regular blood test is totally useful and so is urine and that's one of the reasons that i like wellness fx We just posted a blog post on WellnessFX recently because I've signed up for them and I'm monitoring my blood and urine with WellnessFX. And I find the combination is gonna tell me more than either one. Saliva testing for things like your cortisol levels or your hormone levels throughout the day, your neurotransmitter levels can be profoundly useful. Is it better than blood? No, it's just different. Stool is very specialized and I'm actually not a big fan of testing stool most of the time because there are sampling problems. Sure, if you have clostridium or something, you need to know about that, and a stool sample will do that. But I've spent a lot of money years ago when I was having major GI problems getting stool samples done, and you don't really know if you got some of the offending bacteria in there because there's just so much going on. I am a big fan of looking at the genetic profile of the bacteria that lives in your gut. That's a helpful sort of thing. But overall here... I think that getting a variety of panels is going to be your best
3: bet. Blood testing has a lot to offer that urine, stool, and saliva testing doesn't. First, most of the things measured in your blood are a good reflection of what's going on in the rest of your body, since every part of your body has a constant blood supply, or at least almost every part. And second, things like omega-3 tissue concentrations, glutathione levels, and apolipoproteins can only be measured from blood testing. So as Dave said, it really depends on what you're trying to measure. If you have questions for the podcast, you can contact us on Twitter at BulletproofExec, on Facebook at, Bulletproof, or at facebook.com <laughs> BulletproofExecutive, or by leaving a comment in the show notes for this episode. The show notes will be displayed on BulletproofExec.com along with links to everything we talked about today.
2: For the record, for our listeners, you should know that Army read that the entire time while I was making bizarre faces at him on my Skype cam, and I'm really impressed with his heart rate variability, which he's obviously increased, so he could handle the stress of me making monkey faces at him while he read. It's such a pain.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> now it's time for the Biohacker Report, my favorite part of the show. The first one here—it's a little technical. It comes from the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism. And it talks about the potential role of the antioxidant and detoxification properties of glutathione in autism spectrum disorders, a systematic review and meta-analysis. I like looking at autism and multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's and things like that because they tell us what happens at the end of the biohacking spectrum when there are things that are absolutely broken. What we're trying to do with biohacking is prevent that from happening, but you learn a lot from looking at extremes. With autism, we're looking at an extreme of neurological inflammation. What the study found is that glutathione depletion might affect childhood autism because glutathione is so important for detoxing. So the researchers reasoned that maybe toxins are causing an issue and a lack of glutathione could be a trigger there. They conducted a widespread review that looked at all the studies they could find on glutathione synthesis and its relation to autism and toxin clearance. What they found is that pathways needed for glutathione recycling and functioning were impaired in kids with autism, and they recommended that more studies be carried out to see if glutathione depletion is a contributor to autism. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people in the autism community like to use liposomal glutathione, which is one of the things that I also recommend that people use especially during rapid weight loss or during times of extreme mental performance requirement because glutathione helps with the brain and it helps with detox. It's very interesting, too, that ADD and autism appear to be near each other on the sort of spectrum of brain disorders. So I would say that if you have problems with attention, you could certainly test and see if a glutathione supplement like our liposomal glutathione might be something that makes you feel better or not. This study or this collection of studies, this meta-analysis, really was pretty interesting though because they're saying uh, there's definitely meat on the bone and we should go look and see what else we can
3: learn about it. The next study in today's Biohacker Report is called Chronic Inflammatory Diseases Are Stimulated by Current Lifestyle, How Diet, Stress Levels, and Medication Prevent Your Body from Recovering. And this was also published in the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism. You can tell why we would want to bring this one up. The researchers said that previous studies had shown that immune dysregulation is a major contributor to inflammation, not just decreased immune function. And this is something we've talked about before when we're talking about gluten or inflammatory casein proteins, like Dave mentioned at the beginning of the show. After reviewing data on a massive increase in cases of chronic inflammatory diseases, they hypothesized that immune dysregulation is a widespread problem. The biggest source of inflammation the researchers found was chronic psychological stress and not diet. Not only did stress impair immune function, it also reduced the body's ability to cope with new stressors in a healthy way, so you'd be even worse off if you came up against new and more challenging problems. They also found that an increase in the consumption of polyunsaturated fats, refined carbs and sugars, and anti-nutrients like lectins and saponins, which I'm sorry to say quinoa has a ton of paired with a decreased intake of fat-soluble vitamins and antioxidants, all directly promote inflammation. The researchers looked at and talked about how modern medications like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and other anti-inflammatory drugs also interfere with your immune systems and actually contribute to inflammation in the long run. The researchers concluded that if you want to decrease inflammation... You need to decrease your consumption of omega-6 oils, especially the oxidized forms, like cooked ones, refine carbohydrates, like sugar, and anti-nutrients, and stop over-relying on medication and work on strategies for stress management. Basically, they said you need to read every article on our blog and try and stress less.
2: Our final biohacker report of the day comes from collaboration between the University of California at Irvine and the U.S. Army. And it's titled, A Pace Not Dictated by Electrons, An Empirical Study of Work Without Email. Now, this is definitely a study after my own heart, given that I kind of live on email a lot of the time. UC Irvine researchers in the U.S. Army wanted to see how not checking email reduced stress and increased performance of office workers. Notice this was office workers, not soldiers except maybe soldiers working in offices, but we won't worry about that. They attached heart rate monitors to office workers and monitored how often they switched windows during the day. The people who checked their email the most had the lowest heart rate variability, which is a sign of major stress. Now, if you listen to this podcast often or you read the blog, you know that I'm a huge fan of training yourself to have higher heart rate variability so you can handle stress better. So they're actually using HRV as a sign of ability to manage stress here which definitely goes in line with our bulletproof recommendations. The study found that those who avoided email for five days had a much healthier heartbeat. The email fast, if you want to call it that, also produced far better concentration, as evidenced by a reduction in web surfing and more time spent on each task. The subjects in the email free group also reported far lower subjective stress measures and a greater ability to perform work without distraction. This study is hard proof that email overload is bad for your performance and for your health. If you're one of those people who can't be away from your Crackberry or I have no life phone for more than a few hours, you're less productive and you're probably going to die sooner. Now, there are some people who only answer email once a day and sometimes once every one or two days if they're not under a close deadline. You can try that. You'll get more done and live longer. I certainly have tried that and I've done it at various times throughout my career. It really depends on how much you're juggling. If you're in a situation where you really do need to reply to emails, not habitually, but because they're individually sent to you and because they are something that is required for you to get your paycheck, essentially, what you can do is you can do heart rate variability training so that even if you do have this information overload sort of problem, you can hack yourself to deal with it without falling apart. I actually gave a talk in Sweden about eight months ago at the Thinking Digital Conference. The video is online on the site, and we'll link to it in our show notes. In that video, it's about a 20-minute talk. I talk about the things I did to hack myself to deal with information overload, and that might be a great resource for you if this biohacker report got your interest. And if you're human or you have a job, it probably did. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes at bulletproofexec.com. We always appreciate it if you leave a positive ranking on iTunes or maybe a comment on the site telling us your experience with Bulletproof Coffee or with Upgraded Way, or if you just follow us on Twitter on at Bulletproof Exec. Any of those things help us know that the work we're doing is getting through and is helping people. Army, I'll see you next week. Bye, Dave.